Our scripture lesson is taken from the Gospel of John, the sixth chapter, beginning at verse 1, page 1227. In the Pew Bible, page 1227. John 6, verse 1, reading the first 15 chapters, 15 verses. John 6, verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. There a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number, about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled... He said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up, and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. As far as the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, let me state from the outset that this is not a wonderful, cute little story about a little boy who shared his lunch, and God takes the little that we have and makes it uh, go very far in his church and kingdom. Uh, The little boy who shared his lunch is not the focus of what is going on here. Certainly God does teach us in his word to be generous, and God certainly does teach us in his word that uh, he can take our feeble efforts, our little gifts, and use them uh, in ways that we can't imagine how wonderful uh, he multiplies the effect of our feeble efforts. But that's not what's going on here. You need to remember John's purpose in writing this whole gospel is to bring us to see who Jesus is. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing have uh, life in his name. That's John's purpose. And the gospel is not merely for unbelievers, but the gospel is also for believers, for it's by seeing Jesus that we are made like him. 
As we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another with a glory that doesn't fade. And when uh, we see him as he is, then we will be like him. Uh, that's what John says uh, uh, in his uh, epistle. And it's true also in this life that as we see Jesus, the more we see of him, the more we become like him. And so we want to see Jesus in this passage. He is the focus of every passage. And it's uh, about him that we want to uh, concentrate on. But before we look at the meaning of this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 as it's referred to, although we're told in other passages that there were women and children there in addition to the 5,000, so there were many thousand more people there. Uh, Before we look at the meaning of the miracle, I want to say a word about its uh, historical character. Now, this miracle is... Uh, the only miracle of Jesus, other than his resurrection, the only miracle of Jesus that is recorded in all four Gospels. Uh, Every other uh, miracle that Jesus performed is only mentioned in some of them, but the feeding of the 5,000, together with his resurrection, his uh, greatest miracle, uh, this is the only miracle beside the resurrection that is recorded in all four Gospels. Therefore, we have a very full account of it. The various Gospels give us a different perspective on the miracle. They give us different details. Uh, They help explain each other. They certainly don't contradict each other. You may read one Gospel account and have a question about how it transpired, and then you read another account and you say, oh, okay, that explains it. Uh, They help explain each other, and we find a great great deal of detail uh, offered, such as the fact that in addition to the 5,000 men that are Mentioned in John's Gospel, the other Gospels, uh, some of them mention the fact that there are women and children there, so that uh, scholars have estimated that there are uh, maybe 10, 15, 20,000 people there. We don't know how many of the men were married and brought their wives, and if they did bring their wives, brought also their children, and uh, they had big families. So uh, some have speculated there could have been as many as 25,000 people there. And some people might scratch their head and say, could that really happen in rural uh, Galilee that 25,000 people could come together? Well, it's not all that uncommon a thing for large crowds to gather in the uh, 18th century, the mid-1700s in colonial America. uh, There was a, a very popular preacher by the name of George Whitfield who never performed any miracles, never pretended to perform any miracles. He was simply a a great speaker. He had some stage experience before he became a a preacher, and so he brought some uh, of his acting skill into the pulpit that uh, made him uh, a great orator. And uh, uh, he he regularly brought out crowds of uh, 15 to 20, sometimes uh, 30,000 people. Benjamin Franklin was particularly intrigued by George Whitfield and did sort of a scientific investigation of the crowds that uh, turned out to hear George Whitfield, measuring the area that had been filled with people and then taking a small portion of that area and seeing how many people could fit in that small area and then multiplying that by the number of times that small area fits into the big uh, thing. And he he was amazed at the fact that, that George Whitfield could 
be heard by 25,000 people. Of course, they chose uh, natural amphitheaters, and they always had the wind at their back so that uh, it would carry their voice and so forth. And people went to great measures to be very quiet when uh, he spoke so that everyone could hear. Uh, Benjamin Franklin said that when there were 30,000, it was uh, the people on the outskirts in the back could not hear. But he said even then, uh, 25,000 people could hear George Whitfield. But here was a popular preacher who in rural colonial America could bring together huge crowds of people. So uh, if someone is performing miracles and healing the sick, and that's what we're, we're told at the beginning of this, uh, that the multitudes followed him because they saw his signs in which he performed on those uh, who were diseased, uh, you can be well imagine these people are well motivated to find Jesus and to follow him even out into uh, deserted areas. We're told that this was kind of a, a desert area near Bethsaida in Galilee, and uh, a huge crowd came out for Jesus. And uh, this crowd uh, uh, is uh, there to uh, see the miracles, but also to hear uh, Jesus. They're aware that a miracle has been performed among them. He had them sit down in groups of 50. And then uh, the 12 disciples went to each group with a basket uh, containing uh, fish and bread. You can well imagine that uh, in a group of 50 people, you know, when I uh, preach in uh, Providence United Reformed Church in Des Moines, there's about 50 people there. It's not... uh, a huge crowd, and although they're spread out in a large sanctuary, if they were to all sit together, as uh, Jesus had the disciples gather these people into groups of 50, it doesn't. it's not a big area, and you can see the first person get the basket and see him take some food. And you can well imagine that the person in the back of the group of 50 is thinking, I bet there isn't going to be anything left when the basket comes to me. But the person in the back, when he finally did get the basket, found that there was just as much food in it as there had been for the first one. And everyone was able to eat as much as they wanted to. There wasn't, you know, we've only got a small amount, so just uh, take a small portion and uh, be sure to be generous. Think about the people at the end of the line, at the back of the group, that they get some too. Everybody could take as much as they wanted. And everybody ate as much as they wanted. And then they saw the disciples pass the baskets to to take up the leftovers. The people took stuff that they couldn't eat, and they they put it back in the basket. Uh, Not something that we would do today, but nevertheless, they collected the leftovers. And there was a lot left over. And everybody saw that. They were well aware that a miracle had been performed. And they show that they know a miracle has been performed because... They say, we, this must be the prophet. There was a prophecy in Deuteronomy that a, a prophet like Moses would one day come. And uh, there was much messianic expectation about the, the prophet like Moses. Moses had been their liberator from Egyptian slavery. And if somebody like Moses comes again, maybe he'll be our liberator as well and liberate us from Roman uh, dominion. And so they want to take Jesus and make him a king. Uh, Jesus is anxious to get out of there so that that doesn't happen, and anxious also that his disciples uh, get away from there quickly. In the other accounts, we read how he put them in a boat and sent them away. 
you know, this idea of making Jesus king is something that Satan tempted Jesus with. Jesus knows very well that he's destined to be a king. And Satan offered him a shortcut, and here's another shortcut being offered to him. And uh, he doesn't want his disciples uh, near that temptation. He gets them out of there, and he uh, makes himself absent very quickly as well, because he's not uh, at all inclined to give in to that, that temptation. But these people understand that a miracle has been performed. Now, why do I uh, emphasize this? Well, these gospel accounts, all four gospels, were written within 40 years of the event. They were all written before the destruction of Jerusalem and circulated many years before the destruction of Jerusalem throughout uh, Judea, Galilee, throughout uh, the whole Roman Empire. And there were enemies of the gospel who could have said, well, you know, uh, Jesus couldn't do miracles. Miracles don't happen. We all know miracles don't happen. So let's go to uh, Galilee and let's go to Bethsaida and let's find these uh, people who can tell us that this didn't happen. You can be sure that if it did not happen, if this is made up, then the Gospels would have been discredited immediately. And the Christian religion would never have gotten off the ground if all this is science fiction, if all this is myth and fancy and, and uh, made up, uh, then there were thousands of people, thousands and thousands, 5,000 men plus women and children, maybe 10, 15, 20,000 people who could either confirm or deny this great miracle. And not only this miracle, but all the miracles that are recorded. There were lots of eyewitnesses to it. And the enemies of Jesus would have pounced on that and said, look, you've written these accounts of miracles and we have gone to the site where these miracles supposedly were performed and nobody remembers them, nobody can confirm them. On the contrary, the enemies would go there and find out that indeed he did these very things. When Peter stood up on his Pentecost sermon, he talked about the signs and wonders that Jesus performed. He said, as you well know, as you well know, there is no good reason to reject the authenticity of the gospel accounts in recording supernatural events, which miracles that Jesus performed. The only objection that modern man has is to say, oh, well, miracles are impossible because uh, they don't happen. I never saw one, and I don't know anybody who ever saw one, therefore, because I can't confirm it, it could not have happened. But both reason and revelation teaches us that this world could not exist if there were not a God who created it, who created a world of order, a world of meaning, a world of purpose, the world that we all live in, the world that we all experience, a world that, that knows love and, and joy and happiness. That doesn't come from chaos. That doesn't come from uh, blind evolution of uh, molecules interacting with each other at random to produce this kind of beauty and glory in the creation, it only makes sense if there is a divine creator who has told us that he only performs miracles when he's giving us new revelation and has told us that until Christ returns from the time of the apostles to the time that Christ returns, there, to be, there is to be no new revelation. Therefore, we should not expect any miracles. That's why there are no miracles today, not because God doesn't do them, 
but because he only does them in order to confirm new revelation. And so uh, it is completely unreasonable and even unscientific to reject the authenticity of the Gospels and the historicity of these accounts. But with that in mind, let us look at this event and ask, what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, this is the fourth of the seven great signs that John records. Now, again, he makes reference to Jesus doing lots of miracles uh, in verse 2 of our text. Um, He doesn't describe uh, a particular healing, but he tells us Jesus has been doing a lot of healings. But there are seven miracles that he focuses on, and this is the fourth of them. And uh, we're told, we were told after the first one that these are the signs by which Jesus displayed his glory. That is, Jesus showed his glorious nature, who he is, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Each sign has a particular meaning. It's not just a magic trick to impress people and say, look what I can do, now believe in me. But the sign is, is a message. It is indeed uh, not just a supernatural event, it is a sign, and a sign has a meaning. It points to something, and it points to not just uh, the fact that Jesus is glorious, but each sign has a particular meaning, like the first one where he turned water into wine. The water came from jars that held water for ceremonial cleansing. It was uh, uh, water used to ceremonially cleanse people from the pollution of sin. And he turned that water into wine, pointing to his blood as that which is to wash us clean once for all from the guilt of our sin. He also turned water into wine in the context of a wedding feast, uh, foreshadowing the great joy that we would have at the marriage supper of the Lamb one day when Christ comes again, when there will be wine, no drunkenness, but there will be wine in the sense that there will be great joy Wine to gladden the heart of the man. A man, says the psalmist, and uh, oil to make his face shine. Uh, We will shine and we will be glad when Christ comes again as our great bridegroom to take his bride to himself at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And and so Jesus is is telling us about about his uh, offering himself on the cross in that first miracle. And he's also telling us about what the future joy we have in store uh, with him. It has a lot of meaning. But what's the meaning of this miracle? Well, this miracle precedes a discourse from Jesus on Jesus as the true bread from heaven, as uh, the bread of life, the bread that the Father gives. Now, as we uh, consider that, we need to just uh, put this in the broader biblical context of of God and bread, Bread is a a great theme in the scriptures. Uh, We uh, read about uh, bread from heaven in the uh, Exodus when uh, God provides uh, manna. Moses provides uh, manna through uh, the uh, miracle every day. They can go out and pick up this uh, bread from heaven, also called the food of angels, which raises all kinds of questions for which there's no answer about what angels might eat. And uh, God uh, showed himself to be a God who supplies the, the needs of his people. He gives them bread to eat. Even in the wilderness, he gives them bread to eat through Moses. In Second uh, Kings chapter 4, Elisha the prophet is uh, one who 
uh, feeds uh, the uh, prophets with 20 barley loaves. Now, 20 barley loaves, barley loaves were, uh, barley was uh, something that uh, the poor people ate. They didn't have a nice uh, white uh, flour, wheat flour, but uh, they would eat uh, the, the barley loaves. They weren't big loaves. And 20 barley loaves for 100 prophets is a meager portion for each one. They only got a, a, you know, a fifth of a loaf, and the loaf wasn't much bigger than a, a hamburger bun or whatever. Uh, so it, it was a miracle of multiplying food. But again, God provided a miracle to feed hungry people. He gave hungry people bread in a miraculous way. Interestingly, in uh, Judges 7, we read about Gideon. Gideon was one of the judges who foreshadowed Christ. He was the leader of God's people who gave them victory over their enemy, uh, foreshadowing the fact that Christ also would come as our great leader and deliverer and savior and deliver us from our enemy, Satan, and so forth. Gideon uh, uh, overhears the Midianites describe a dream that one of them had. And one of them uh, had a dream in which a loaf of barley bread, again barley, that uh, loaf for the poor people, uh, that loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of the Midians and uh, crushes the tents of the Midians. And another Midianite says, that surely is Gideon. And uh, Gideon is uh, hiding in the bushes, listening to these two men talk, one telling his dream, the other interpreting the dream. And Gideon is depicted as a loaf of bread. And not only a loaf of bread, but a barley bread loaf. Uh, The one who foreshadows Christ is symbolically represented as a loaf of bread. And now we have Jesus also uh, coming in later in this same chapter, saying uh, that he is the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to men. Uh, he goes on to say in John 6:51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give him will be uh, the life of the The bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Uh, His flesh is bread, bread that he gives for the life of the world, bread that comes down from heaven. God fed the uh, Israelites in the wilderness. Jesus performs a miracle in the wilderness, feeding people with miraculous bread. And he does so to introduce to them the idea that he is the true bread from heaven. And uh, the true bread from heaven that they must eat. Now, how do they eat his flesh? Well, uh, he does this also in the context of the Passover. Uh, We read in verse 4 of our text, Now the Passover feast of the Jews was near. What has that got to do with the feeding of the 5,000? Well, we're told that so that we interpret this miracle in the light of the Passover and the fact that Jesus is our Passover lamb and that he must be sacrificed like the Passover lamb that was sacrificed and whose blood was put on the doorframe of the house and whose flesh was eaten in order to sustain the people for the journey that was ahead. And uh, Jesus is such a Passover lamb whose uh, flesh must be eaten. And he explains in John 6 that it's the spirit that gives life 
and that uh, we are to believe in him, and by believing in him, we eat his flesh and drink his blood. Well, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 sets the framework for this discourse that comes at the latter part of John chapter 6. Jesus is pointing us to the fact that he is the true bread from heaven and that we receive life through him. Uh, He is the bread that we need for eternal life. Now, the people who witnessed this miracle, the crowds that witnessed, correctly understood that Jesus is a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, that he is the prophet who is to come, a greater prophet than Moses, Moses who fed the people in the wilderness, Jesus feeds the people in the wilderness, Uh, feeds them miraculously, as Moses also provided miraculous bread. They put the two things together and they say, yes, he's the new Moses. And Moses was our liberator from Egyptian slavery. Therefore, Jesus will be our liberator as well. But they apply it in the wrong way. They want liberation, not from sin and death and the grave. They want liberation, not from slavery to uh, sin. They want liberation from Rome. Now, we look at that and say how sad that they missed the point, but sadly that missing the point is still going on in the world today with regard to Jesus. There's a great part of uh, the world today that looks to Jesus for miracles of healing of their earthly diseases, saying, uh, Uh, We want to go to a healing service and be anointed with the Spirit so that uh, we don't get sick anymore. And there are those who want Jesus to make them prosperous, the uh, gospel of prosperity. Jesus is here to fulfill your greatest dreams of avarice and greed. Uh, You want uh, bigger cars, bigger houses. You just need enough faith to ask God and trust God to supply it and uh, also write a big check for my ministry and uh, God will see it and he'll open the floodgates of heaven and give you all kinds of material blessings. And people are going to Jesus now for material blessings, for food, uh, food in great abundance, all kinds of material wealth they want from him and they're also going to him for their physical healing And if you go to these churches that uh, preach the uh, prosperity gospel or the health and wellness gospel, the false gospels, to be sure, if you go to those churches, you don't hear anything about sin and about liberation from uh, sin and the need to humble yourself and, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. They're missing the point. Just as the crowds miss the point there, they recognize that Jesus is the Christ. They, they recognize that, and people recognize that today as well, but they're going to him for the wrong thing. We need to remember that we're sinners and that we are under condemnation and we have the sentence of death hanging over us. We are by nature children of wrath and uh, dead in our trespasses and sins, and our only hope is to be made alive. And we are made alive through faith in Jesus. Jesus who died on the cross to pay for our sins, whose body was broken, whose blood was shed, so that we might be forgiven and be made heirs of eternal life. He's come to feed us. 
He's come to feed us and to give us the bread of life. But it's not so that we can live on this earth in luxury. And it's not so that we can live on this earth without ever contracting a, a virus. It's so that we can live eternally in the new heavens and the new earth as we suffer many griefs and sorrows now for the strengthening of our faith. May God give us such a view of Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus who fed the multitudes in the wilderness with a miracle that is beyond dispute and confirmed by the evidence of the fact that it has never been contradicted by those who were the witnesses of it. We pray, Father, that we may humble ourselves under your word and recognize Jesus as indeed the true Christ who has come to fulfill the prophecies of old and to be our Passover lamb, to offer his flesh to us to eat as the bread of life, that we through faith in him might be forgiven our sins and made heirs of eternal life. O Lord, humble our hearts that we willingly acknowledge our sin and misery apart from Christ and look to him alone as the one who can make us right in your sight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.